Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee for the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever okay this evening we have a bevy of announcements daylight savings time is Sunday set your clocks one hour forward go to bed an hour earlier so you won't sleep through class Sunday morning we have a guest uh, teacher David Roseland will be here. I will be on vacation next week. Uh, Roseland will be here on Sunday. Sunday's also communion. Ike Spiker will be here on Tuesday night and George Meisinger on Thursday night. And then next Wednesday on March 14th, we need volunteers to help assemble packets for the conference. They will meet here at the church at 10 a.m. They will provide snacks and drinks. I don't see cookies there, but snacks and drinks. See Sue Daly for more information. Then the ladies' prayer lunch, not brunch, at 10.30 this Saturday. Bring a sack lunch beverage and dessert will be provided. I think that's all, all of my announcements. Now, I may fumble around tonight because... I was given a complimentary copy, genuine leather-bound, of the English Standard Version. This is a new translation, and Martin's got one. And Somebody in Australia, whose name escapes me, contacted me, and uh, somebody who listens to, well, we always say listens to tapes, but that's such an anachronism now. But they listen down and down under. And they asked me about this version, what I thought about it. I don't know. So they contacted the publisher, and they said, why don't you send Pastor Dean a complimentary copy? So they did. So I thought, well, maybe I'll use it in the pulpit. And I've done this once before, and I always get up here and go, why did I make that decision? I can't read it. (laughs) Oh, well. I think we need to go to the Lord in prayer. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're... Oh, one other announcement. Sorry about that. There's a letter here on a missions project from uh, Jim Myers Ministry that's out on the uh, table in the foyer that I encourage you to pick up. They're going to be running some summer camps this summer, and they want to put together some people on a short-term missions trip this summer to go over to Kiev and help with this. And so the information is out there on the table. Okay, now we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we're grateful that we can come together this evening to be refreshed by your word, to be encouraged, strengthened, that the focus of our thinking will be transformed from the details of our lives, the things that distract us, discourage us, the things that excite us and stimulate us, and the things that that uh, we enjoy to put our attention upon that which has eternal value and gives meaning and definition to everything else in life. Father, we pray that as we study your word that God the Holy Spirit would use it to expand our thinking and challenge our focus and that we would be responsive to what is being taught, recognizing that we're here for the purpose of, of being transformed into the image of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. Last time I pointed out that as we begin this section, the shift is to the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And the high priesthood of Christ is based uh, uh, analogously on the high priesthood of Melchizedek. And the argument in this section on the part of the writer of Hebrews to a group of believers, Jewish believers who come out of Judaism, many of them, it seems, came out of a background that uh, of the Levitical priesthood, a background of serving in the uh, temple, and they're questioning the superiority of Christ, the superiority of Christianity over the, the ritual of Judaism. And so in this main section that begins here in chapter 1, extends down through uh, chapter 10, is the focal point of the whole epistle. This is where the largest doctrinal section is found in chapters 7, 8, 9, up through uh, 10, 17. That's the largest doctrinal exposition in the passage. Everything in, in the uh, book up to this point has been focusing on this idea of developing Christ's high priestly ministry and that impact that that has on the individual life of the believer today. Now, the question that they would, that would come into their mind is a question of how can Christ be a priest when he's not of the tribe of Levi and not a descendant of Aaron? Because under the Mosaic law, a, the high priest had to be able to trace his genealogy all the way back to Aaron. And the priests who served in the temple had to be of the tribe of Levi and had to be able to prove their genealogical link back to Levi. There were those that returned from the captivity who came back from Babylon to Judea and were unable to do that, and they were not allowed to serve in the Zerubbabel temple, which is the first phase of the second temple. The second phase is the Herodian uh, temple. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's answering this question ahead of time. One of the things that marks a good teacher is a good teacher understands his audience. A good teacher understands the kinds of questions that people may ask, and and he uh, figures out what they're going to be ahead of time and tries to answer them. There are a lot of times when I as a pastor understand that there are people who come to this congregation who come from all manner of different backgrounds. We have new people that come uh, are coming to be a part of this uh, body of believers, and they come from many different backgrounds. Some come from Bible church background, some come from Methodist background, some come from a who knows what background, but they bring a load of questions 
with them. I remember one time when I was teaching through the spiritual life, when I was at one church, and there was a lady in the church who had grown up in a family that was were, were seriously committed generational, by multi-generational. By that I mean their great-grandparents were some of the original charismatics in this country. And so she had grown up in this entire environment of heavy charismatic teaching, and almost everything that I said as I was teaching through this, even though she had been under my ministry and under another doctrinal pastor's ministry for five or six years before that, it, for the first time, it was really coming together in her thinking, and there was this the contrast between what she was hearing me teach and what she was had always heard and always been taught coming out of this charismatic background. And so I had to be pay attention to that, and in my teaching, I had to pay a, uh, make a point of contrasting what I was teaching with what the, what charismatics taught. Now, that didn't apply to most people in the congregation. But you can't sit over here on this side of the congregation and say, you know, this really doesn't interest me because you don't know there may be five people over here who are really wrestling with certain things. Uh, as part of our congregation here, I don't spend a lot of time uh, interacting with what Roman Catholic theology says. But 90% of the people in the congregation up in Preston City came out of a Roman Catholic background. By contrasting truth with Roman Catholic teaching at times, it helped them get a clearer focus on what the Bible was saying as opposed to what they had always heard. And that's how we learn is by, by seeing the truth in contrast with the close counterfeit. That brings out, that puts into relief the differences so that we can, we can learn it better. And a good teacher anticipates the kinds of questions that people either will ask or ought to ask. And so that's what's going on here. He is anticipating the question, why should Jesus have a priesthood and a high priesthood that is superior to, or, or, or that is even legitimate because uh, he's not a Levite and he isn't a descendant of Aaron? So he's, the writer argues that his, that Christ's priesthood is based on the order of Melchizedek. And the first four verses or the first three verses, explain that connection. For the, this Melchizedek, and we learned that he was the king of Salem. Salem was the ancient name for the city of Jerusalem, that Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And it was probably a dynastic title for the ruler of Salem. And we don't know who he was. There's nothing in the record of Scripture to identify Melchizedek as an historical individual. Now, as I pointed out in the past, uh, there is almost a unanimous opinion among the rabbis in the Mishnah, Midrash, and the ancient um, text that believe that Melchizedek was indeed Shem, the son of Noah. And that's possible. But scripturally, there's no record of his family, unlike the Levitical priesthood, which emphasizes familial connection. So the point of verse 2 and 3 is to emphasize that he does not have this kind of family connection. So he was the king of Salem. He was the priest of El Elyon in the Hebrew from Genesis chapter 
17, he was the priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. Melchizedek went out to bless him, and to him, that is to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. The old English word for that, for a tenth, is tithe. And it is from this use of the word a tenth in the Bible that we get this idea of tithing. And there are so many churches today that practice tithing and talk about tithing, and and you get a lot of confusion over the whole issue of Christian giving, the whole ministry of giving, and, and what tithing is all about. So the thing that happens there in that one event is Abraham gave a tenth part of everything, not just what he had taken, but of everything, all the spoil from the defeat of the four kings, and he gave a tenth of it to Melchizedek. And that's the point of a tithe. The tithe, when you look at the Old Testament, was that a, an individual was paying tribute to someone in authority over them in recognizing their superior position. And we have historical uh, examples under the uh, reign of Hammurabi in uh, Babylon and others where this was a pretty standard type of, of uh, gift or tribute in the ancient world. And it tended to be just a round figure. 10% was a nice figure. The other night in Genesis... In our study of, of Joseph we talked about how Joseph, uh, at the end of the seven years of famine, took the land, uh, allowed the people to sell land to the government, and the government bought it with grain so, so the people were able to survive. And then it leased the land back out to the people as tenant farmers, and they gave 20% of, what they, of their produce back to the government. And I pointed out from one example that I knew about, uh, anecdotally, that, that that's a, a standard example for tenant farmers e- even today is to give 20% to the landlord and landowner and they keep the other 80%. And Morgan came up after class and said that's pretty much the royalty fee to landowners where you have uh, an oil well on the property. That's an oil lease. They get 20%. So the, these kinds of numbers, 20%, 10%, have had a tremendous history because they're round numbers, they're easy easy to figure. And so the giving of a tithe from Abraham to Melchizedek was part of his recognition of the superior place, superior position of Melchizedek. And that's the point that the writer of Hebrews is bringing out in this section. Now in the second part of verse 2, it goes on to read that Melchizedek was first by translation of his name, which means king of righteousness. Melchi from the, is a derivative of Melech, which is the Hebrew word for king. The I there is, uh, puts it in a genitive relationship, and Sedek is from the root for righteousness, so it means king of righteousness. And he, that he's also king of Salem, and Salem is from the, it derives from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. So as the king of Salem, he would also be the king of peace. And he goes on in verse 3 to explain that he's without father, mother, or genealogy, meaning that there's no record of his family. It doesn't mean he didn't have any father. It's not saying that. It doesn't say that he didn't have a mother, that this was somehow, there are people who come along and say, well, this must have been the pre-incarnate Christ because, look, he doesn't have any parents. No, but he was a, 
a human being. He had to be fully human to function as a priest. If he was the pre-incarnate Christ without being true humanity, yet he could not function as a priest. You can't have the pre-incarnate Christ functioning as a priest because he hadn't been incarnate yet. So that's just a real simple argument, but there's always people who uh, want to fight and die on that particular hill, and they haven't thought it through very well. He's without father or mother or genealogy, and all of which was important if you're going to prove your Levitical and Aaronic connections. Having neither beginning of days, the Bible doesn't reveal when he was born, nor end of life. The Bible doesn't tell when he died for the purpose of setting him up to be an analogy, a type for the future ministry of Christ. But he resembles the Son of God. Now, that very statement I pointed out last time means that the prototype for the Melchizedekian priesthood is the Son of God, not the other way around, because it's Melchizedek who resembles the Son of God, not ultimately the Son of God that resembles Melchizedek. And then we come to verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoil. So now we're back to the word tithe. And the word tithe is used several times in these verses from verse 4 down through verse 10. The, the word tithe is used uh, several times, five or six uh, times as you go through that particular section, which tells us that this tithe is part of the focus of the writer. So we need to stop and take a little time in our study of Hebrews to show what this is all about. There are many, many churches in America that emphasize tithing. Almost every group emphasizes tithing. And it's completely inconsistent with an understanding of the, of the distinctions between the Old Testament administration of God and the New Testament administration of God. It's not wrong because it doesn't fit dispensationalism. It's wrong because it doesn't fit the Bible. And the Bible teaches dispensationalism. You understand, we're we start with the Bible, not with an abstract theology. So we're not starting with dispensationalism and say, oh, that doesn't fit our system. No, the system comes from the Scriptures. And because the Scriptures draw these distinctions between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the law related to Israel, that it was a national law, and the church age, which is multinational and is not limited to a particular ethnic group and has no set law in the sense of a constitution. When you're in the Old Testament with Israel, the law of Moses is their constitution. That is their body of law. That is comparable to the U.S. Constitution. To come along and say, we're going to take things out of this body of law that applies only to the nation Israel, and we're going to say that that's mandatory for the church age is like saying that citizens of the United States are held legally responsible for laws in the French Constitution. Now, we all know there are people who are, seem to be headed that way, but that's, a, that's another story. You can't take the laws of one national entity and apply them to another national entity. Even if their constitutions are extremely similar, you can't take the laws of Britain and make a United States citizen uh, 
subordinate to those laws unless he's living in Britain. And that's the same thing that happens with the church. You have too many people who don't understand the distinction and the, between the law as a constitution for Israel. It's not just spiritual. It, it has to, it's their political base. It has to do with their whole civil, legal, and spiritual structure. So, we have tithing in the Mosaic Law. But wait a minute. The concept of tithing antedates or precedes the Mosaic Law. You have two references to tithing in Genesis. And the first is given here in uh, Genesis uh, 14. So prior to the Mosaic Law, there's two instances where tithe is re- referenced. Abraham gives a tithe in Genesis 14, 18 to 20. And then Jacob gives a tithe in Genesis 28, 20 to 22. In Genesis 28, 20, we read, then this is at Bethel. Jacob is uh, coming back or is, 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 is about to leave the land. He makes a vow and he says, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, this is at the ancient Canaanite city was Luz. This is at Bethel, which means the house of God. Now, there wasn't a house of God there. This was a place where Abraham had also set up an altar to sacrifice. Now, we studied this not that long ago in in uh, Genesis, and this thought never occurred to me. I can't tell you how many times I've taught this particular lesson, and the thought never hit me until today. When Abraham paid tithes, gave his 10%, it was only a one-time event, as we'll see, one time, to Melchizedek, he had somebody to give it to. There was a Gentile priest king that was worshiping the true God. Who did Jacob give it to? I never thought about that. Just something hit me. Who's Jacob? Jacob leaves for, you know, he's gone for 20 years before he comes back. He goes up to Haran. God blesses him. He comes back with all these sheep and all these goats. He's got several million dollars worth of assets. So he's got 10%, let's just say. Let's just say he comes back with $10 million. He comes back, he's going to give a tenth to God, a million dollars. There's no structure for it. How did he do that? I don't know. So I got on the phone to a couple of my, you know, more educated Old Testament scholar friends. They went, hmm, hmm. Well, you, it, hmm. Nobody had an answer. There's no structure there. So we don't know how or to whom he gave it. How did he, how did he do this? What's the mechanic? We don't know, because the only thing that's in the land at that time are the Canaanites. Now, I could speculate and say, well, Melchizedek must have had an heir. And just as Melchizedek was the priest king of Salem, when Abraham was there, he would have an heir that would also be the priest king of Salem in Jacob's generation. And perhaps Jacob gave it to him, possibly. We don't know. The Bible is completely silent. There's no temple. There's no tabernacle. There's no priesthood. There's no infrastructure. There's nothing. So we don't know how he did this, to whom he did it, gave it. So, but he did. These are the only two times 
in the Old Testament, before the the uh, Mosaic Law, that we have the mention of of tithe, just these two times. And what we observe in both of them is that, number one, they are voluntary. Number one, they are voluntary. They are not mandatory. There is no legal mandate that Abraham should give a tenth of the spoil to Melchizedek. There's no legal mandate that, Jacob, if you really want to be blessed spiritually, and if God truly blesses you spiritually, you need to give 10% to God. There is no legal mandate anywhere. There's no mandate in Scripture anywhere. It just, out of the blue, they do this as an act of gratitude and worship to God. So it is it is purely a voluntary event that is a gracious response to God's blessing in their life. They're not discovering the law of tithing so that they can tap into God's miracle Miracle spiritual ATM machine in the sky, which is kind of how the health and wealth guys do it. You have to discover tithing. You give 10%, God will bless you, and he'll return it a hundredfold, and you'll get wealthy. And I remember talking some years ago to an extremely discouraged individual who had given uh, six figures to, to the church, almost every dime he had, because the pastor told him that God would give him a, a hundredfold return. And there's just dozens and hundreds of people who get duped by that. But they're not discovering some law of tithing that's going to tap into God's ATM machine. They are responding in gratitude to God. They're not expecting anything in return. It is simply an act of devotion to someone who is their superior. That was the cultural, it was sort of a cultural thing to do, and they knew that God was their their superior. Now, the only giving amount that is specifically prescribed by God pertains to the famine in Egypt. And in the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, God commanded that a fifth or 20% of all the grain produced in Egypt should go into the storehouse during the seven years of plenty in preparation for the seven years of famine. So you have 20% there. That's the, and, and that was like a, more of a tax, more of a, a, you might say, federally imposed, governmentally imposed uh, savings program in order to prepare for, the, uh, prepare for the future. So all you have prior to the Mosaic Law is one type of giving. It is voluntary, free will, grace-based, gratitude-oriented giving with nothing expected in return. Then we come to the Mosaic Law. And in the Mosaic Law, we have uh, tithing is given, and it was not just a tithing of money, but a tithing which included all their possessions, everything, not just money. Uh, Leviticus 27, verse 30 says, Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, are of the fruit of the tree. So it's a 10% of your cows belong to the Lord, 10% of your sheep, 10% of your fruit, 10% of your grain, everything, 10% of your money, everything, 10% of it uh, belonged to the Lord and was holy to the Lord. That means it was set apart to the Lord. That's what that word uh, set apart, uh, I mean, holy means is to be 
uh, set apart to the Lord. So Leviticus 27.30, it belongs to the Lord. Now, there were three different tithes in Israel. Now, I want to ask people, okay, which tithe is this that you're talking about? The first tithe under the Mosaic Law supported the bureaucracy of the theocracy. It supported the bureaucracy of the theocracy because the priests and the Levites were the administrators of the theocracy. Theocracy is a word that means God rules. God was the head of the government. God was, by analogy, you might say God was the executive branch. God ruled. But the it was the priests and the Levites who carried out the administration of the kingdom, and their center of focus was around the tabernacle initially, and then later the temple. So the first tithe was designed to support the bureaucracy of the theocracy, the sons of Levi. Numbers 18, 21 to 30, it was to the sons of Levi for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform, the service of the tent of meaning. Meeting, And this sets a precedent historically that those who serve the Lord in a full-time capacity have a right to be supported by God's people financially. And that principle, of course, is carried over. And in the pastorals, Paul talks to Timothy about the fact that the, the elder the te- who teaches well and rules well is worthy of double honor. And he talks about the fact that you shouldn't muzzle, uses the analogy of not muzzling the ox. In other words, that uh, pastors and Christian workers should be well paid so that finances don't become a distraction for them. And I can't tell you how many pastors have to work or they, they don't make enough. And we need, we need, we are, and I commend people here in this congregation, we are setting a precedent the way that we're handling these pastors' conferences because we are supplying the financial resources for many of these men to come to subsidize their airfare, the students in in many cases, to subsidize their hotel room so that uh, they can come and stay without that being a burden to them. Some of these men don't don't get paid enough and their churches don't have enough resources to fly them here, to, to put them up in a hotel and to take care of them. For the, for the time that they're here. And so we're doing a tremendous job in subsidizing uh, many of these men so that they are able to come and so the finances aren't an issue during the conference for those who are pastors, for those who are students, for those who are missionaries or full-time Christian workers. Uh, we provide uh, lunch for them on Monday, just about everybody on Monday, on Tuesday, we provide lunch for all these out-of-towners. We're going to take them over to Good Company and give them some Texas barbecue. And then on Wednesday, we take them over to Guadalajara and give them Mexican food. But their their breakfast is next door to Aunt Pookie's. So that two meals get taken care of, the room and board. But that's the generosity of this congregation because we're trying to establish a precedent of respect and honor for men who teach the word and that they should be well taken care of and finances should not keep them uh, from becoming better students of the word and learning more about the word. And so that's just a tremendous thing that all of you are doing. And I, it just, it, it just, it makes me feel good when, uh, when I hear about people who just come out of the woodwork and say, well, I, I, not much I can do, but 
but um, I'd like to give a hundred bucks or two hundred bucks or three hundred bucks, and and maybe that'll go to paying for the room of one of these guys at the hotel. And that's just that's just tremendous generosity and graciousness shows the grace orientation of the congregation, and it just makes me proud of the congregation. This is what it's all about: is being able to do these kinds of things and and support folks. So that's just uh, just a tremendous thing to do. So the first tithe was 10% went to support the sons of Levi uh, because of their work in the tabernacle later in the temple. A second tithe, and I find this interesting, this was for a national celebration of the grace and generosity of God. It's described in Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 24. There were uh, tithes and offerings uh, sacrifices, free will offerings that mentioned in Deuteronomy uh, 14, and this second 10% was used to support this national feast. Now, I like to have fun with this. Because if God in the Old Testament was very physical, very graphic, very, very literal in the way he handled things, because in the process of revelation... As you go from the very beginning to the New Testament, God teaches doctrine in with very concrete terms and illustrations and examples. You have the visual training aids of the tabernacle. You have the the bronze uh, laver. You have the tent of meeting. You have the table of showbread. You have the candlestick. You have the ark. Uh, the the, the uh, um, altar of incense, then inside you have the Ark of the Covenant, all these things, everything designed to visually teach very abstract doctrines. So God sets things up with these concrete images, and you have historical events that are used to teach specific things. And so we come to this particular event, and its purpose was to give the nation a barometer to evaluate their spirituality. So let's say they go through a period of of 10 or 20 years, and they are tremendously obedient. They follow the Sabbath. They follow the Sabbath uh, sabbatical year law. They are very obedient. The people are responsive to doctrine. They're very positive. And God is going to bless them materially because that's what he promised them in the contract, in the Mosaic law. If you obey me, I will uh, bless you abundantly. You will be extremely fruitful. There will be rain uh, not too much, not too little, just the right amount. Your crops will be abundant. There will be an overabundance of food, of resources. Everything will be taken care of. So 20 years goes by and you come to your uh, annual feast and you take 10% of the gross national product and you've got all kinds of money. You can go out and you can you can get the finest caviar and you can buy the finest prime beef for steaks and for roasts, and you can get the highest quality vegetables, not like the stuff we get in the grocery store anymore. I remember when I was a kid, our next door neighbor was a fruit wholesaler. His name was also Fruit. I thought that was fun. But he would bring us these avocados that were like small melons. They were enormous, and they were tremendous, but you couldn't buy them at the grocery store. You got They were restaurant-quality produce, and that was when I first learned that there's really a quality of produce that's much better than what you get in the grocery store. So they could buy the highest-quality produce, the highest-quality meat. They, if they had 
uh, when they had beer, they, they had microbrews. They weren't buying, you know, Budweiser and Schlitz. They were, they were getting good microbrew beer, and they had beer. That's what a strong drink offering was in the Old Testament. They didn't know how to distill beverages, so they weren't bringing single malt scotch, but they had, uh, they had good beer. That's the Hebrew word for a strong drink offering. Often used to, uh, kids, a friend of mine who, enjoyed wine and said, when Jesus catered to the plebeian tastes of the people at the wedding of Cana, he gave them wine. But when God wanted something to drink in the Old Testament, he wanted a beer. (laughs) Strong drink offering. So they would bring the finest um, micro-brewed beer and the finest of everything. And they would have a tremendous party. Well, and let's imagine that 20 years goes by and we've got a time of spiritual regression, time of spiritual apostasy, and they work through the sabbatical year, and they never take the Sabbath day off, and, and God begins to discipline them, and the rain begins to disappear, and they go through a time of drought and a time of famine, and next thing you know, they have a, they, 20 years later, they're going to have their feast, and they think, you know, I remember back when we were kids, remember the good old days? And we used to have these really great parties, and now we're stuck here with uh, Buckhorn Beer and, and uh, Lone Star, and, and all we can afford is Texas Caviar. We can't get the, the good Persian or, or uh, Black Sea Beluga Caviar anymore. You all know what Texas Caviar is? It's made with black-eyed peas. But that's all, that's all we can afford. We, we can't have very much. All we can do is... Uh, we can go down to, to, to Luby's maybe, and we can just uh, get some carry out from there, but that's the best that we can do. And I wonder what happened. See, this is a very visual, very material barometer of spirituality. All of a sudden, well, wait a minute, maybe, maybe we're not doing what the Lord wants us to do. That's what it was designed to show. So every year there was a second tithe, 10%, for a national celebration, sort of like the 4th of July with uh, fireworks and everything else, a day of celebration to celebrate the grace and generosity of God. So that means 20% now for your national income tax, mandatory taxation. Then each third year, there was another 10% was to be given for use in supporting the Levite, the alien, the orphan, and the widow. That is, those that were destitute, those that couldn't take care of themselves, those that were older, those who couldn't work, those who didn't have any parents. This is the the social safety net. There was a level of a welfare system there, in a sense, to provide for those who were less fortunate. So there was 10% every third year. So that meant that you had pretty much a 23 and a third percent taxation. That was, that was mandatory. That was what the tithe. So when you talk about tithing, which 10% are you talking about? And if you're going to do one, you have to do all three. So that's the basis from the Old Testament. But you see, the Mosaic Law also recognized free will or grace giving. You had mandatory giving and you had free will, voluntary grace giving. Remember, before the Mosaic Law, there were two tithes. They were voluntary, grace-based 
gifts. Just because there was 10% doesn't mean that they were uh, establishing a hard and fast precedent. Now you also have within the Mosaic Law free will or grace giving. So you're going to give 23 and a, a third to the government in order to take care of all these other things as part of, to the temple as part of your mandatory taxation. But now you're expected to give above that a free will or grace offering to express your personal gratitude toward God and thanks for all that he has done. So this could take you up to 35, 40, 50% of your income would be given, some of it under mandatory principle and others under free will or grace giving. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. This has to be understood within the context of the Mosaic Law and God's promise of blessing related to their uh, giving. Proverbs 11.24 There's one who scatters. This is the person who is a a, a giver, the person who is uh, grace-oriented, the person who doesn't hold on in a miserly fashion to every dime that comes in, but he shares it to help others. There's one who scatters yet increases all the more. And there's one who withholds what is justly due, what his responsibility is. He's just too tight to do what is right, but it results only in want. In other words, he may keep the money, but there's no happiness in his life. Then the another passage, Moses raised money for the building of the tabernacle and to provide all of the gold and all of the jewels and all the silver, everything that was used in the construction of the, of the tabernacle through a free will offering. Exodus 25, 1 and 2 in comparison with 35, 5 and 35, 21. Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him. The emphasis there is on personal volition. That's up to the individual to make a decision, to understand what the issues are, and to make a decision that they are going to give at whatever level they choose. It's comparable to the New Testament principle, is every man purposeth in his heart. It is an, an individual decision, and not a mandatory contribution. And then there are other passages, such as Leviticus 22, 28 to 23, Leviticus 23, 38, 27, 30, 27, 30, and 31, Numbers 15, 3, Deuteronomy 12:6, Ezra 1:4 and 3:5. These passages all emphasize free will or grace giving. So you had required giving, which is analogous to national taxation. The state has a right to tax the citizens. Jesus supported this when he was asked about the drachma tax and he took the, the penny and said, see whose face is on here? That's Caesar. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Jesus authenticated the validity of a national entity to tax its people for the uh, support of the government. So that's required giving. But free will giving was to be a matter of individual choice and decision and the amounts left up to the of the of the worshiper. Now we come in the Old Testament to a particular passage that is frequently quoted by 
preachers when they want to uh, manipulate people into giving more. This is in Malachi chapter 3. Now, there has to be a little background understanding or isagogics on Malachi. Malachi is the, probably the last book written in the Old Testament. Malachi is a prophet. He's coming to the people who are in apostasy, and he's challenging them with their spiritual apostasy because they're failing to obey God in completing the building of the temple and fulfilling the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Malachi is about the same time as Nehemiah. Nehemiah returned to finish the building of the walls and complete reestablishment of the nation as it was before the Babylonian captivity. And part of the problem was the people quit applying the law in a number of areas, including the area of tithing. And in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, there's a condemnation for failure to pay the required taxes, those three tithes that I mentioned already from the Mosaic law. And if we find, if I can find verse 8 in my ESV, I will read it to you. Let's see how they translate it. Here's the challenge. God calls upon them in the previous verse, in verse 7, to return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? The question then from God is, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God's response, in your tithes and contributions, there's your two categories, mandatory tithing and contributions, free will offerings. You're robbing God by not applying the law and giving. In verse 8, or verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you, Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and therefore put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. What does God mean, put him to the test? God said, if you obey the law, I will pour out blessings from heaven upon you and I will bless you bountifully. And that's exactly what the next verse says. He says, test me by being obedient to me And test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You see, you can't understand that verse if you don't understand the the Levitical laws and mandates. In the Levitical laws, in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God said, if you obey the law, I am going to bless you and prosper you materially and physically with the abundance of produce. It's an agricultural society. So it, God uses this, this extremely concrete graphic way to demonstrate how he will bless them if they're obedient. And God's just saying, why don't you test me? Just do what the law says to do and test me and I will pour out blessings from it. The windows of heaven are going to open. But where do you understand that? The principle is found in the Mosaic law. God's not talking to the Assyrians here. He's not talking to the Romans. He's not talking to the Greeks. He's not talking to the Egyptians. He can only say this to the Jews because only the Jews have a contract with God which stipulates that if you obey me, 
I will pour out blessings on you. So you can't take this out of context and apply it to the Greeks or the Romans or the Babylonians or the Egyptians or Americans in a Baptist church in the south or in a Methodist church in the north or an Episcopal or Anglican church in England because they're not Jews living in the land under the Mosaic law. It's just a total fragmentation of Scripture to try to interpret it that way. When we come to the word storehouse, the word storehouse there is the the Hebrew word that refers to the temple. That was, in the ancient world, the, the local bank. Well, they didn't have a Comerica or I can't banks change names so much I can't keep up with them all. You've got Wells Fargo and Comerica and all these other banks that pop up here, Wachovia and whatever. That you didn't have that in the ancient world. You had the temple, and that often served as a place of banking because the priests served as the as the guards. So the temple was the treasury, and people when they brought their their money to the house of the Lord. They were not billing to the church. There's no application there. They're taking it to the temple because that is where the tithes were to be taken in terms of the Mosaic law. You just can't interpret this any other way. And if you don't understand Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you can't properly interpret this, which is a problem we have today as people take this completely out of context. So the National Bank... And for storing the tithes was the house of God, which is referred to by the term the house, or in this case, the storehouse. And God had chastised them already because they had failed to bring their tithes to the storehouse. Now, in the church age, we're no longer under the Mosaic law. Romans chapter 16, the old covenant has been, that Christ is the end of the law. Old Covenant, we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 8, the Old Covenant has been superseded or replaced by the New Covenant. Hebrews 8, 13 and following. When God, in Hebrews 8, 13, when he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. Doesn't mean he made the first in reference to sacrifices obsolete because Christ now has died on the cross doesn't say, well, he's made the first obsolete in reference to the ritual in the temple because Christ has come and he's replaced that. It's the whole law. It's all or nothing. If you go down to your mortgage company or to another mortgage company and bank and you redo your mortgage, are they going to go into your initial mortgage and say, well, let's take pages one and two and we're going to keep those in effect and we're just going to modify pages three and four? Is that how it works? No, they write a whole new contract. You replace the old one with a new one. Since you bought that house 20, 30 years ago, laws have probably changed, contract laws changed, you're going to have to get a whole new contract. You can't just replace two paragraphs. And that's what's happening here. You can't go back into the Old Testament and say, well, part of the Mosaic Law continues and part of it doesn't. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. So let's look at some key principles. First of all, giving, even under the Mosaic Law, was not a part of the spiritual life or the means of spiritual 
growth. That's how that should be understood. Even under the Mosaic Law, it was not part of, comma, or a means to spiritual growth. It's a result of spiritual growth. I don't give to grow. I grow and I realize what God's done for me and I express my gratitude to him. It's the outworking of genuine grace orientation and gratitude in the soul for everything that God has provided. Giving isn't a means to growth. It's the result of growth. Second, grace does not mean you don't have an obligation or a responsibility to give. Some people who, and I understand this, people who come out of a legalistic, tithing-based church can go to the other extreme when they come to a grace-oriented church and say, they never talk about money. Isn't that great? I don't know. I don't have to give anything. You know, I, I go to this church. They have a box at the back, and if I come in the side door, I never have to deal with the fact I can keep all my money now. Isn't that great? No, grace doesn't mean you don't have an obligation. Grace doesn't mean it's free either. Salvation is free to you, but it costs God something. There's no free lunch. That's always amazing. Most of you are conservatives. You believe there's no such thing as a free lunch. How many Christians are conservatives? There's no such thing as a free lunch. Let's get rid of welfare. Let's emphasize personal responsibility. But then they go to church and they think it's a free lunch. There's no such thing as a free... Grace isn't free. It's free to you. There's no obligation. There's no mandatory payment. You don't have to come in and pay $10, $20, $100, $500 in order to get the word. It's free. But that doesn't mean that there's no obligation or responsibility as God has prospered you to participate in the financial uh, responsibilities of local church and missions and various ministries so that you can have a sense of a personal blessing and promise because you were involved in that ministry and you are part of God's means of letting that happen. Grace doesn't mean it's free, just that there's no obligation. Okay, we come to tithing in the New Testament. And I won't get through all of this, but I'll get through a little bit of it. Tithing in the New Testament. Tithing is mentioned in the Gospels only in reference to the legalistic practice of the Pharisees. It's the only time you have the word tithe. It's They were legalistic. Now, when you and I look at the Pharisees, we look at the Pharisees through the lens of the negative critique of the New Testament. But if you were a Jew living in first century, nobody was better, nobody was more moral or righteous or upright than the Pharisees. That's why when Jesus said, if you're going to get into the kingdom of God, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He wasn't wasn't condemning them for their legalism in that statement. He was saying, you think of them as the best that human beings can be. But you've got to be a whole lot better to get into heaven. See, they had a, 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 a reputation for morality and for being spiritually mature. But in Luke 11.42 and in 18.12, God condemns the legalistic way in which they're handling tithing. It's not that tithing was wrong. That was in the law. And as Paul said, the law was holy and just and righteous. There's nothing wrong with tithing under the Mosaic Law. What they did with it, though, was they made it a sign of spirituality. 
That's when it became a work, and that's when it became wrong and legalistic. It became a means of getting God's blessing. That's when it shifted. Giving 10% was the same, but their motivation was, if I tithe, God will bless me. The Lord taught that, in contrast, that giving was to be a private matter between the believer and God. Once that dollar, once that check, once that $1,000, $10,000 leaves your hand, you don't have any right to talk about it anymore. You're giving it to the Lord. How this church uses it, how this ministry uses it, how that ministry uses it, whatever they do with it, you don't. Ha- you just turn a blind eye to it and walk away. It's amazing how many people, especially people who have more money to give, can't get past that because they'll give $10,000 or $50,000 or $100,000 and then that ministry, that seminary, that church doesn't do what they think they ought to do and they say, well, you know, I, I gave you that money. Now, I have some say in it. Now, you may look at it and say, well, you're changing your philosophy of ministry. You're not doing the things you used to. I'm not going to give anymore. And that's your responsibility. But the person who gives doesn't have a string attached to that money so that they can come, come in with the money and dictate policy and procedure. And that happens a lot. And I know of a case recently where someone who was an extremely generous and large giver was challenged on that particular point and absolutely went ballistic. He didn't understand it. When you give as unto the Lord, that means that once it leaves your hand, it's gone. I remember a church I attended for many years had a split back in the 70s. There was a man who sat in front of me, and I remember my mother asking, said, well, are you leaving? And he said, no, I've given so much money to this church, i got to stay here and make sure it's used right. I was only like 15 or... No, I was a little older than that. I was about 19, and I thought, hmm, that's not grace-giving. Matthew 6, 2, Jesus said, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. This is why I personally do not think it's a good idea to have nameplates. You know, this is a good time at the beginning of a church to talk about this. You go to a lot of churches, they say, this was, you'll have a plate on the back of the pew, this was given in memorial to so-and-so. Or this is the, you know, Miss uh, Sally Wainwright Sunday School Room. And they have these plaques around the church and people will give money. The first church I ever pastored in uh, got in a hole financially in the, in the uh, uh, Depression. And they had the church about half built and they ran out of money. And there was one couple in the church, uh, one lady, her husband had died. And she said, I will come in and I will... I will pay for the rest of the building of the church. But you can't, but, but the, only, the only requirement is I want you to name the church after my husband. You know, and I'm just glad the guy's name wasn't something like um, Adolf or Frank or, and you know, the guy's name was Paul, so at least it sounded biblical. And nobody really knew that. They just thought the church was named after the Apostle Paul, but it wasn't. It was named after Paul Nashke down the street. <laughs> just imagine what his name could have been. 
Well, it could have been Claude's Union Church for all that. You know, you never know. So, people do these things, and you, there just should be a policy from the beginning that you don't, don't do any of that. Giving is supposed to be between the individual and the Lord, and there shouldn't be any marker, any plaque, any recognition, because the only recognition that matters is from the Lord, and according to this passage, is that if you get your reward from people... That's it. Lord's not going to give it to you. And I'd rather get my recognition from the Lord rather than uh, people. Matthew 6, 3 and 4. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself uh, reward you openly. You know, I make it a policy. I have no clue what anybody gives. I don't ever look at anything. I don't know what anybody gives to the ministry. I don't know what anybody gives to the church. It's none of my business. I don't want to know. I don't want to ever have a clue. But I know pastors who know exactly to the penny how much. It's on their computer at church, how much every person in the church gives. That's standard operating procedure in many, many churches. Well, we'll stop there, and we'll come back to it next time. And uh, it'll be two or three weeks until after the conference, but we'll stop at that point and come back to the New Testament teaching on tithing. And just so it doesn't get left off the tape, there's no tithing in the New Testament. It's all grace giving. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to be strengthened and encouraged, to understand grace, to understand grace giving a little more clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.